So a couple of things that I wanted to say first. Um, I've gotten some feedback so far. This is session three. And one of the things that I would want to correct if I were to do it over is that I've entitled the, the material The Gospel and the LGBT. And then sometimes I refer to the uh, topic as homosexuality or sometimes, not very often, but I use the word gay to describe it too. And the way I'm using those three terms is in my, I'm using them as if they're synonyms, but I realize that they are not necessarily. There are, there are people who are homosexual who do not consider themselves part of the LGBT movement. And so LGBT plus, you know, that whole thing is a, is a is the name of a political movement or an a, a, an advocacy group, and so that's not the same necessarily as being homosexual. And then also the other thing that I would want to point out is that the term gay is especially um, fraught with different definitions. That people will use the word in different ways, and so um, I'm trying to use. I'm trying to, they're all synonymous in my presentation as dealing with the sin or the, the lifestyle of homosexual practice. And so I'm using LGBT as a way of saying that, even though I recognize that I'm not necessarily accurate in the, in the world's perspective and culture's perspective. And, and also I, I would say that no matter how accurate I was today, a year from now will probably be different again. So it's a rapidly changing. And if I understand, even within the LGBT movement, there's other groups who are adding on to that acronym, and not everybody in the movement are happy about the other ones who want to get in because there's, there's contradictory positions sometimes. So anyway, all that to say, as I understand my terms are being used the way I think they mean. The other thing I wanted to point out is that when I describe what I am seeing, the characteristics of a person who says no, no, yes, no, or whatever to the questions, that that's my perception of those, it's my, those are the possibilities of why a person would be there, best as I can understand, but it's not an exhaustive list. There could be people who hold that position that I'm not representing in my description very well. And so I'll, I'll point that out as we go through too. So here we are in the, um, the four questions that we're trying to understand is, do I believe the gospel? Is this an evil desire? Is this a sinful action? And is this an unwise path? And so how you answer yes or no to those questions will um, guide you or help you understand where your, your positions are. And, and as I've made clear, um, I would check green to all four of those. That, that is what I believe the Bible teaches. And so I'm trying to show what the implications of that are, and maybe tonight as we finish it up, we'll understand some things differently. So just as a review, remember that if we say that we believe the gospel, what we're saying is that I am more sinful than I can possibly imagine. I have been saved by grace alone, not by my merit, not because I'm righteous, not because I clean myself up. Rather, I'm saved first by grace. I'm not any better than anyone else. I didn't get called by God because I was better. Um, yeah, strangely, um, God 
seems to have, he goes beyond grace for those who seem to be most unsavable, right? And that's what bothered the people of Jesus' day is that he was uh, eating with tax collectors and sinners and yet it was hard for the wealthy to come into the kingdom because they looked so righteous. And so Jesus says, I'm not coming to call the righteous but sinners to repent. So the point is, is it's humiliating, it's humbling. I'm not any better than anybody else. And then fourthly, God is working to conform me to Jesus. And so having been saved by grace, I didn't clean myself up first to be saved, but having been saved, God is not going to fail to move me in a direction. So he's going to work in my life, and his end goal for my life, for all believers, is to make us more and more like the person of Jesus. And so that's, so that's what I mean by, do I believe the gospel? It would at least be these things. And then the next question is, is this an evil desire? And so, um, again, from what I understand the Bible, uh, the evil desire is wanting something that you can't fulfill without committing sin. And so we all face our evil desires. We obey the same Jesus and his word, and we have a gospel resources and hope. There's a way to overcome and put to death your evil desires and and God provides victory, and we support one another in our battles. And so my evil desires are not more uh, acceptable than your evil desires, or vice versa. There's not a, we all struggle with evil desires, and we all have the potential to do horrible things, and we're all tempted to do those things, and so we all need to put them to death. So we join ourselves, each other, in the battle regardless of which particular evil desire you might, or set of evil desires that you might face. Okay, and then if a person said, no, I don't believe the gospel, no, I don't think it's an evil desire, no, I don't think it's a sinful action, I don't even think it's unwise, then this is what I, again, what I would say is this is probably some of the people in that group would would meet these criteria. So this is my opinion. But, uh, Basically, this person is probably, or people in this group would say, no one has authority over my sex life. I, I am my own autonomous. I answer to no one on this matter. And love is love. It, there, there aren't any rules for how it's conducted. And so how dare you say that I can't love how I want to love or be loved how I want to be loved? And if you do not tolerate this position on my part, you are the evil one. And as a matter of fact, some in this group would even say, if you refuse to affirm me in my um, homosexual lifestyle, then you are evil for not affirming me. So that would be the other uh, ex extreme, I suppose. If you voted all, if you said yes to all four questions, this would be if you said no to all four questions. Um, there are mixes, right? So if you said no, I don't believe the gospel at all, but I do think that this is an evil desire, then the people who are in this category are people like Pharisees or Islamic religion or, or, or even totalitarian governments like Russia. That's, this is where they are. They reject um, Jesus entirely, but they would still hold to some sort of um, uh, perspective that this is an evil thing. And so the uh, the reaction is only one of condemnation and um, 
depression, really. And unfortunately, many in the world think that this is where we as gospel believers are. And um, I can see why they would think so, but I, I, it's, they're missing out on that first checkbox. So we're talking about the gospel first. And so I'm, I'm not going to be so judgmental, right? I'm not going to be, I'm going to say the things like I've already said, that I'm saved by grace. I'm not any better. I'm facing the same evil desires too. I'm, it's not my teaching. It's Jesus' teaching that I'm responding to. So anyway, that's what this particular possibility. What if a person said, yes, I believe in the gospel, but no, I do not think that this is an evil desire. And so people in this group, they are saying, I think, that Jesus does not say no to me here. And I've tried really hard to be changed and I cannot be changed. God made me this way. My desires can't be changed. And I think some people in this category would, would start to define themselves as being gay or being um, homosexual or same-sex attracted. They, they would use those kinds of terms. And so they would, they would say that the desire itself is not an evil desire. It's, a, um, it's just who I am. Now this is really, really uh, critical because the definition of evil desire is what they're hinging on, right? Some could say here, just because I'm tempted this way isn't wrong. And I would grant that the temptation, the idea, remember we spent a lot of time last time, the idea or the definition is not necessarily evil, but the consent to it is what makes it sinful. But if it's an evil desire, that means that it could already be finding its source in my heart. And so sin comes out of the heart. And if I don't treat it as an evil desire, I may deceive myself and be overtaken by it. And so I would argue that as I understand the biblical definition of an evil desire, any desire that is for something that cannot be satisfied without breaking God's law is categorically an evil desire and ought to be not entertained at all. And the fact that it feels like I cannot be changed would have more to do with me not trusting the gospel, not realizing the resources that are there, than it does about whether or not I could actually be changed. You follow what I say? It's, it's using my experience to judge the gospel as insufficient rather than repenting of an evil desire and letting the gospel do its work. So this is a, I'm afraid that a lot of uh, believers might be in this camp, either from social pressure from others because it seems intolerant to um, make a stand. But uh, this, this, is a, uh, this is a real crossroads, I think. This, this divides at a critical junction. Okay. So now we want to talk about questions three and four. Is it an evil action or sinful action, excuse me, and then is it an um, a unwise path? So is it a sinful action? And so to answer that question, I'm going to look at the biblical view of marriage, 
the biblical view of our bodies, and our bodies belong, I'm going to try to assert that our bodies belong to God. So that's my three-part where I'm getting to answer of this question. Is it a sinful action? So first of all, the biblical view of marriage is from the Lord Jesus. He said, uh, they came to him and said, is it okay to divorce for any and every cause? And Jesus reaffirms the creator mandate for marriage. He says, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. And so Jesus is affirming and aligning himself with God's, the creator's design, right? And the creator said, for this reason, a man will leave his mother, his father and mother, and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So he says, haven't you read that? And so he's rebuking those who are trying to get him to be fuzzy on divorce, and he's telling them the definition of marriage. And so Jesus affirms the foundation of marriage, and he affirms the, um, the entire scriptures because of the basis on which he does this. And so just simply stated, Jesus says that marriage is for a male and a female in a bond of covenant love. It's a promise. And so that's the very narrow view of marriage. Okay, so they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So that's the biblical view of marriage, Jesus' teaching. And so it's very narrow. Our, our human sexuality was created as a gift for a husband and wife. It's a beautiful thing in the context of marriage, but that's the only place where the Bible ever regards it as beautiful. Every other manifestation of sexual um, activity or whatever is a um, violation of that pure mandate for husband and wife in a life so you know until death do us part covenant. Okay, the next thing is the biblical view of our bodies, and so there's a lot of places in the Bible we could go to talk about how the Bible, how God views our bodies. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. Um, there have been views in history and in religion where our bodies are not all that important and it's only what you do in your spirit that matters. And so there was even the Gnostic movement in the early church eras in the first couple of centuries where you could do whatever you wanted with your body and it didn't matter. Only what matters is in your spirit. Your bodies are dirty and physical anyway and to under, you know, put, uh, under Greek philosophies Anything that was physical was, oh, by definition, inferior. Only things that were ideal or invisible were perfect. And so they just lived with it. didn't matter what happened in your body. Well, the Bible never views the body that way at all. They views us as being holistic, and our bodies are beautiful, and, and Jesus' body has to die on the cross, and Jesus' body has to be resurrected in order for us to participate in that. So... The Bible's view of the body is very high. It's part of who we are. It's our human nature. And so God created us with our bodies. And so in the church of Corinth, there was a particular um, part of that early Gnosticism was that, you know, they're trying to justify different kinds of behaviors. And one of them was to use this reasoning. They say, you say food for the stomach and stomach for food and God will destroy them both. And so there was this, there was a, a number of little sayings 
that, uh, you know, all things are lawful, the different kinds of phrases that the Corinthian people would, would use, but this betrayed a philosophy of view of life, and one of them was that, hey, it's just your body, stomach's for food, food's for stomach, you do what you want to do, it's just natural desires, nothing matters. God's going to destroy them both anyway. The only thing that matters is your spirit. So, since nothing else matters, you can, it doesn't matter what you do with your body. And so, Paul is calling them out. This is your statement? This is your phrase? He said, let me correct it. He says, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So this is where this biblical view of the Bible, of the body, comes through, right? That your body matters a lot. It's not just something that God was going to destroy. He's actually going to resurrect it. And what you do in your body now matters a ton. And so the body, however, is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord. So your body, first and foremost, belongs to God. And God is for your body. And by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. So Jesus' body is raised from the dead, and we need to be raised bodily. So it's a pretty big deal. It says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? And so in the scriptures, we learn that our bodies belong to Jesus so much that when we are saved and we're in Christ, when we believe the gospel, our bodies are members of Christ in the same mysterious way that the husband and wife are one with their bodies. Somehow Jesus is one with us in the church. And he says, shall I take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. And so they were using this phrase, bodies for food, food for body, to justify or to ignore or to treat it as a, not a big deal to to use a prostitute. And Paul is saying, can you do, you can't unite Jesus like that. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. So he quotes all the way back to Genesis, right? So for the Bible, for God's perspective, your body is a big deal. He really views it high. And sexuality is an even uh, not bigger, but is equally a big deal because it's made for a husband and wife and it's a uniting soul connecting, spirit connecting oneness that can't be thrown around in a profane way. And so the two will become one flesh. So you see the case he's making, right? And so he says, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit as well. So you're not supposed to do that. So then the next thing I want to argue is we've seen the biblical view of marriage and the biblical view of our bodies. And then I want to point out that our bodies belong to God. So as Paul continues his argument in that same section, he says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins people commit are outside their bodies. So other sins that are not sexual morality are like um, anger or... Um, malice or slander. Those are things you kind of do outside of your body, but those who sin sexually sin against their own bodies. So when your body participates in sexual immorality, it's against your body. You're defiling. Remember the phrases we heard last week about the sin nature or the evil desires 
are destructive to the body. They corrupt the body. They, God gave them over to the degradation of their bodies because of their, their um, lack of faith and lack of thanking God. And so the whole point is that we're sinning against our own bodies. And so do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God, which is, man, that's the most powerful argument of all, right? God is in you. You receive the Holy Spirit. You are God's house. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And so, it's pretty clear to me uh, that you, our bodies belong to God and any sexual sin, anything like homosexuality would be a violation of our body. And it, this is re- supported elsewhere like Romans 12, right? Therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true worship. Have you ever thought about that? How important it is to view yourself as putting your body on the altar. It's not just me that gets to serve you today, Jesus. It's me and my body. They belong to you. And I don't get to use my body the way I want. It belongs to you. I'm going to be a living sacrifice. And he's master of me, body and soul. So um, that's how I would come to the conclusion to answer the question, yes, it is a sinful action. Okay? So that's how I'm going to get to those three check marks. Am I... Is the gospel true? Yes. Is this a sinful desire? Yes, it is. And there's resources in the gospel to defeat it. And is it a sinful action? Is it a um, yeah, sinful action? And the answer is yes. And they, So the group of people who are here are going to say things like, the Bible has a narrow view of marriage. The Bible has a high view of the human body. We have the privilege of honoring God with our bodies. And so that's why I have to say it's a sinful action to misuse it in a way that is not right. And I wanted to just kind of do it on side here. Notice the ironic difference that we see in our culture today. The gospel has a high view of the body and sexuality that it's sacred, actually. right? It's, it's a covenant thing that is sacred, it's holy, it's precious. But at the same time, even though my body is really important and my sexuality is actually a sacred gift only to be shared with my spouse under the bonds of covenant love, at the same time, the gospel teaches me that my ultimate identity is found in Jesus, right? Who I am is a Christian first and foremost. I'm a sinner saved by grace. And so, the gospel says my body matters, but as important as that is, that's not who you are. You're in Jesus. That's who you are. But the world, they look at those living outside the gospel have a low view of the significance of the body and sexuality, that it's common. It's okay to sleep around and hook up. It's not any big a deal. It's, it's not any, it's almost like shaking hands. Or, you know, it's just expected. And so they have a low view. It don't make such a big deal about it. It's the, we're all free, free love. And yet at the same time, ironically then, their ultimate identity is found in their sexuality. They, that becomes who I am. 
And so they, the very thing that they treat as common, do you see the, the irony that a Christian has a high view of the Bible and sex, but our identity is in Jesus, but an unbeliever is going to be the opposite is they have a low view of it. It's not sacred. It's whatever I want to do. But it's the most important thing about me. You need to know that I am a lesbian or that I'm gay. You need to know that. That's my identity. And you need to affirm me in that identity. Even though, typically, they have a low view of the significance of their own body. So it's an ironic comparison. Okay, so that was question three. And then question four is, is this an unwise path? Is this an unwise path? So is, the, is a homosexual lifestyle an unwise path? And so the argument I'm going to use from the Bible is that it is a perversion of God's good design for creation. And so I know that that word perversion is going to feel real uh, inflammatory and um, contentious, and people it probably won't make them happy in general. But I'm using it precisely. I'm not using it pejoratively. And I, I think I even went and got a definition um, from the Oxford languages. It's the alteration of something from its original course, meaning, or state, to a distortion or corruption of what was first intended. So I'm using it in this way, not in a mean way. I'm using it technically. A perversion is the alteration of something from its original course, meaning, or state to a distortion or corruption of what was first intended. So God gave us our sexuality for the original purpose for making us male and female was that we would follow in the path of what it means to be male and female and that in a marriage covenant we would participate in heterosexual, committed, lifelong sexual interaction, right? That's, That's God's design. Satan typically likes to or often does distort the truth, right? He takes something that's true and he bends it or breaks it or reverses it. And so that's why this homosexuality is a perversion in this technical sense is because it's a distortion of what was first intended. That's why transgender decisions are in this sense, right? Because it's a distortion of what God originally intended. I, that's what the Bible would say. So Romans 1, 26 says, because of this, because of the rebellion of the people and not honoring God, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. So the, right, the, uh, the way that God had intended women to, re, to interact sexually would be with the man, but they exchanged that natural, God-given approach for unnatural. And then he says, in the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with, with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men. 
and received in themselves the due penalty for their, the NIV uses the word error, but the word underneath is the word perversion. That's the Greek word for perversion. So this text teaches us that homosexual activity is distorting God's original design. So, so that's why I would argue that, um, that it is a, um, a unwise path, right? You can't violate God's design and stay in the path of wisdom. There's another passage in Jude here that I was going to share. Is, um, this is, Jude is responding to false teaching, and he's drawing a number of contrasts, and he's, he says, though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And so he's, he's making this, you're either in this camp or that camp. And so I want to remind you that one time God delivered his people out of Egypt, right? But then when they came to the promised land, they did not believe and they were all destroyed in the desert for 40 years because of their lack of faith. So you, you could have this perspective and they distorted it and received consequences. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. So here's another example where God created the angels and, he, and some of them choose to join Satan in the rebellion and they have, they've abandoned their, their intended purpose and have become perverted, right? They're not what they were supposed to be and they are now kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. So when those demons said to Jesus, are you come to throw us in the fire before our appointed time, right? This, that's what they're talking about. They know that their day is coming. And so, so this writer of Jude, he's comparing the people who came out of Egypt, but the people that fell in the desert. The angels that had a place and the angels that fell. Okay, so in that context, the next comparison he makes is what we're going to talk about, is in a similar way. Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. That's that same Greek word. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So this illustrates that you, you can't pervert God's intended design without experiencing in this case, eternal consequences. So all I, I'm, that's all I really think I need to say on this unwise path is that it's, it's just by definition unwise. You just can't break God's design. It's like um, if the manufacturer uh, manufactures your car and he says you put a certain amount of oil in it and every 5,000 miles you, put it not, you, put, you change the oil and we say, no, 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 I'm going to use orange pop. I don't like the oil, it's too expensive. I love orange soda. I'm going to use orange soda, and I'm going to change the oil and put orange soda in. What happens? There are consequences. to the, It's not what the designer intended. It's, not, it's, it's against every aspect of what was. The car will last a long time if you do it the right way. And so that's, 
That's what I'm trying to get at. I also think it's important to point out that, do you see how long I've been talking before we got to this? And I think that's important. I think it's important as Christians that um, we talk about the gospel first and my own struggle with evil desires second and the, the dangers of disobeying God's law before I need to tell this, The fact that it's against nature is sort of like the least important thing when dealing with an unbeliever, for sure. It's, it's way down the, the, the path. And yet many believers will start with this one. <laughs> and I think that's why people think we're like Russia. All right, so let me just review again. The Bible teaches that homosexuality is a perversion of God's design. Satan distorts God's plan and seeks to destroy people created in God's image. That's his goal. That's his approach. And all sins carry consequences. But sins that accompany a perversion carry additional consequences. I don't know how I cannot say that from the Bible. So that's why it's an unwise path. All right. So now, so I've answered all four questions at some level from a biblical perspective, best I can. And so there's a few other potential options that we haven't fleshed out yet. And so I want to just consider those together and again, speculate a little bit. But what if a person said, yes, I believe the gospel. No, I don't think it's an evil desire. But yes, I do think it's an evil, a sinful action, right? So I, I believe the gospel. It's not an evil desire, but it is a sinful action. What, what uh, characteristics, who is saying that, right? That, and I don't know for sure, but this is my guess. First of all, these, these are people who, they cannot deny the biblical condemnation of homosexual actions. They see that Bible says that, right? So these are people who would actually grant that the Bible sort of teaches that. Not everybody does. We'll talk about that in a minute, but at least people in this category, they, they realize you can't get around what the Bible teaches without really twisting the scriptures. So they, that's good. Right? They grant that, right? But they, they, the people here, I think they might consider the resources of the gospel neither needed nor sufficient. So well, I don't need any help with this. It's okay to have this desire set. Or uh, it's not, I've, like we said before, I've tried, but I can't. It's, there's no hope for me. And so that I think that people who would, would say, no, it's not a des bad desire, evil desire, but yes, it is a sinful action, just don't think it matters, I guess. And they choose to pursue a life of celibacy, right? They want to live for God. They don't want to live in a way that is in violation of God's law. But I, I still think that sometimes they still would identify as, as gay. And so this is um, the kind of person, I think, who would say, I'm a gay Christian. And uh, I, think that's, I think that's what they're thinking. And so I, I know some people in this category, and they might not like the way I've painted the, into a corner, but I don't mean to. I might be wrong about some of these thoughts but this is how I'm understanding it, right? That, that they, they understand that they can't act on it. They can't get past that. But they don't see Jesus as speaking toward it as an 
as a uh, evil desire. And so in some ways, it's kind of a, a, a hopeless cul-de-sac. They, they can't get out because they don't believe there's a way out. And, and I, I, I find that kind of um, also sort of contradictory. I don't know how you can believe that it's an evil action, a sinful action, without at the same time admitting it must therefore be a sinful desire. At least the way I define sinful uh, evil desire is an evil desire is a desire for something that you cannot satisfy without breaking God's law. And if you grant that doing this satisfaction of this desire breaks God's law, how can you not say it's an evil desire? And if you were to see, oh, I guess it is, then there's hope because now you can repent and benefit of the, of the blessings of the gospel of how we can put to death whatever belongs to our sinful nature, evil desires, etc. But if you won't grant that it's an evil desire, you're kind of stuck in a, in a mode of um, this hopeless perspective, at least hopeless from the standpoint of not ever not being identified as gay. And so I, I, that's a, I, this is a particularly sad place from my perspective. Um, what if you said yes to the gospel, but no, it's not an evil desire, and no, it's not even a sinful action, right? Who is it that says that? And so that is, that is what they're saying is that the scriptures themselves do not condemn a form of homosexuality like committed monogamous homosexual relationships. And so if I marry, if a man marries a man, and it's for life, and it's within a covenant, there's not any promiscuity, then, then this is just like any other marriage, and this is an okay thing. And the way I read the Bible, the problem in Sodom and Gomorrah was a hospitality problem, not a sexual morality problem. And the way that Paul talks about homosexuality in Romans 1 is it's a cultural problem. He's talking about them. Um, he's talking about this um, promiscuous version of, of homosexuality or even uh, child pedophilia and that kind of homosexuality, and that's not where I'm talking about. I'm talking about a two grown men, age of a consent, who are married to each other, or two women who are married to one another in a committed relationship. It's not the same as what the Bible is condemning. And so, that's, so they, they bend the scriptures to say that, and that's where they wind up. They would say the scriptures do not condemn what I'm in. Love is love, and I have, you know, this is just the way it is. And so they would... Um, this is the position of a lot of mainline denominations right now who accept practicing homosexuals as clergy, right? The church next door has voted to align with the United Methodist Church faction, the, the, split, the church split, right? Over, and they have practicing homosexuals as pastors that, that they don't see any problem. This is what they have to say. I believe the gospel this is not an evil desire and it's not a sinful action. That's what they believe. And so that's how they get to where they are. Um, saying things like love is love, right? I, I, I can be loved too. And I want to say that from my perspective, this position contradicts the content of the gospel. And so I'm gonna, that's, that's me saying that from my perspective, this position is in error. And why would I say that? I would go to the scriptures and I would see Paul say, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor practicing homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so based on the scriptures, if you continue in sin, if you affirm homosexual lifestyle, you have placed yourself in a place that the Bible says you are none of his. You have contradicted the teachings of Jesus. And so I, I guess what I'm trying to say is it's not possible for you to say yes to the gospel and no, no, and still be in Christ. And then so Paul says that is what some of you were. That's what it Can you believe it? That whole list, everybody in at least, Paul probably was thinking of individuals and he knew people that fit every one of those categories of that list. And, but that's what you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. See, the gospel can change anyone, even me. Isn't that amazing? And so I can love Jesus even though I have been a horrible sinner of any stripe or whatever, right? There, go back to the gospel. So, and we already talked about a person who would say no to all four of those things. All right? So we've kind of con considered all of those paths. What if a person said no to the gospel and no to, um, it's not a sinful desire, or evil desire, and it's not a sinful action, but I still think it might be unwise. I mean, this is a parent, right, who won't affirm anything with the Bible or anything and doesn't want to, a lot of people would want to say this because it's, so culturally offensive to hold a position that any of these, you know, for you to say in the public school environment that homosexuality is an evil desire, or for you to say that it's a sinful action would make you pariah in most cases, right? I mean, it's really not popular. But you might still want to argue that eh, it's not very wise. What kinds of arguments would they use? And I've heard this before from teachers or from speakers. And unfortunately, this is how, this is like, um, in my thing, this is like when parents are trying to scare their kids from doing bad things sexually by using pictures of victims of STDs, right? It's the wrong motivation. It's a motivation, but it's not the right way. It's external. And so the only wisdom arguments you could use here is that practicing homosexuals have statistically higher rates of suicide. That's a true statement. That, that community, those people, life doesn't go well for them. And, and um, that's just true. And so if there was a way to persuade your children to not go down that road, you would be... Um, in your mind, you could be thinking, I'm putting them in a safer place. All right? I don't want them to be part of a group. If there was any group of behaviors or perspectives that increased your suicide rate likelihood, you would say, don't do that. Right? And so that's about all you have. From a, from a human perspective, all you've got is statistics. And then the other one, you know, practicing homosexuals have statistically higher rates of certain health risks. So there are, there are particular diseases that are 
um, not exclusively in the homosexual community, but a lot higher occurrences. And so you could argue that it's not wise, but that's, again, all you have. But again, what I'm trying to point out here is that that last question sometimes is our, um, as a church, as a people of God, is our first argument. And I don't think that's necessarily very wise. You know, you don't, it doesn't, it doesn't do right by Jesus to start out with it's perverted and you're going to get diseases. That's the wrong argument. It's got to go all the way back to I'm a sinner, man. And I, it, my, dis, my sins lead to all kinds of perversions and diseases too, like the disease of my soul that will send me to hell. And when I elevate myself as more important than someone else, that's a perversion of God's intent for me, just as deep a perversion as anything I could do with my body. And so the idea that some things are okay sins and some things are not okay sins is a reflection of how self-deceived I am about my own sin, because mine are more socially acceptable in our old-fashioned world. And so I'm kind of on purpose pointing out that these are kind of, it's too late to be arguing this stuff. So I uh, just want to review the conclusions. I am more sinful than I can imagine. I've been saved by grace alone, not by my works. I am not any better than anyone else. God is working to conform me to Jesus. And so he's changing my life. I belong to him. I don't get to choose We all face our evil desires. We obey the same Jesus and his word, and he he pushes us around. We don't like it. He steps on our toes, but we submit to him. We have gospel resources. The death of the Lord Jesus is death for me and as me. His resurrection is for me and as me. And so in the power of his death and resurrection, I can put to death whatever belongs to my sinful nature, including evil desires. And I can support you and you can support me as fellow believers in our battle. And, it, and I can accept you even if your evil desires are different than mine. They're not worse than mine, nor am I better than you. And so I can, I can uh, pray for and struggle and, and worship together with a person who has a different set of evil desires. And it's just as important for me to be faithful to my one woman than it is for anyone else to avoid any other kind of sexual sin. And so that's the, the good news of the gospel. And then the Bible has a very narrow view of marriage and it has a high view of my body. And so Jesus is sufficient. He meets my needs. He's enough. I don't need, I don't need anything. Even if I never marry, if I never have sexual experiences, that's okay. Jesus is all I need. He's enough for me. Notice that this is a a giving of myself to Jesus, not a, oh, well, I guess I got to be celibate answer. No, this is, you own me. You own me and you're enough. I don't need anything else. And I have the privilege of honoring God with my body for those few years that I'm here on this planet. And he will be my ultimate supply. He's my identity. And, you know, if you're going to push me all the way to the end, I'm going to say, The Bible teaches that homosexuality is a perversion of God's design. Satan loves to pervert and destroy. And all sins carry consequences. So you need to repent. So that's what I think is the right answer. That's the most holistic 
it took me three hours to get here, answer, <laughs> right? So that's the end. Father in heaven, thank you for, um, well, thank you for saving us from our sins. We are all most, uh, more sinful than we can possibly imagine, and your grace is more sufficient than we could have ever hoped for. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us so much, and we pray that you would reorder our loves so that we love you more than we love our own self, that we love you, Jesus, even more than we love our own body, that our body belongs to you, and so we live for you in whatever course and path you give us. In Jesus' name, amen.